You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado... Our guest today is a paleoanthropologist whose research centers on the evolution of human diet with a focus on meat-eating, but has included topics as diverse as human cannibalism and chimpanzee carnivory. She's done fieldwork in Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, Indonesia, and has been supported in her research by the Fulbright Hayes Program, the Leakey Foundation, National Geographic Society, the National Science Foundation, Rutgers University, the Society for American Archaeology, the Smithsonian, and the Venner Gren uh, Foundation, and probably a thousand others. It seems like everyone wants to give her money. Since joining the Smithsonian in 2005, uh, she helped to put together the Hall of Human Origins, uh, in addition to continuing her active field laboratory and experimental research programs, she leads the Human Origins Program's education and outreach efforts. Uh, She also more recently developed a research program in evolution, education, and science communication. And although all of that sounds super impressive, perhaps her greatest accomplishment was being featured on episode 20 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. That's right. We are wel- welcoming back Dr. Brianna Paulbiner to kick off this new series and geek out about all things Pleistocene. So welcome back. Well, thank you very much. And I'm very excited to be back. I I could not think of a better person to have back for the first of these Sinai and Synapses Fellows interviews than you, Brianna. And back when you were on, like I said, episode 20, back when we were starting our Human Origins program, um, did you know that you had gotten into the fellowship yet? No, I did not. Um, I think okay. I had applied at that point, but I did not know that I had gotten in. Okay. Okay. I was trying to remember. It, you know, this was all pre-COVID, so everything feels like it was 20 years ago, maybe. Yeah. Um, so typically, we start out our episodes by asking a a question. And so I figured, even though it's just me today, that we should still do that. And so I want to know, right off the bat, we're going to start with some heavy-hitting questions about it. Which extinct animal would you most want to ride? Oh, wow. Like That's strap a, a saddle question. on it and we're gone. What, what, what are you doing? You know, um, probably some kind of saber-toothed cat. Um, mostly because I just really want to see what they looked like. Um, <laughs> I, I, not because I think I would survive that kind of experience, but, um, I have actually ridden on an elephant before. I think otherwise I would have said something like a woolly mammoth or like some giant mega herbivore, but, um, when you ride on an elephant, did you like sit on the elephant or was there like a saddle? Was there one of those giant uh, canopies like in Aladdin? Yeah, it was It was more like the ladder, uh, okay. the latter. Yeah. Okay. As I was thinking about woolly mammoths, do we know if they were soft or not? Um, I think probably given modern elephant hair, which is pretty wiry, I think, and their skin is real tough. I suspect that it would be a kind of an abrasive experience to ride a woolly mammoth. 
because I was trying to think of this earlier too, which would I which would I pick? And my first thought was Willie Mammoth because it just seems so soft and cuddly. But then ah, it just felt like man, that might just be like riding a, a paintbrush or something, and uh, mm. not not like a good one, like the dollar store kind. And I don't <laughs> yeah, know not I'm like a soft that. bristle paintbrush. No, but yeah. no, I would I would love to see like from the perspective of a saber tooth. You know, like what's it like to to be with a predator, with a Pleistocene predator. I think that'd be really cool. And you've done a lot of work with them, right? Well, not, I wish I have done a lot of work with saber tooth in the sense of, you know, they're, I'm interested in, in predation, what predators do, particularly the kinds of marks they leave on bones and how they chew on their prey and whether I could see that in the fossil record. But, um, we, but, and a lot of the predators that were around during the time that early humans were eating meat are still around today, or at least they're really close relatives, things like lions and leopards and cheetahs and hyenas, but there are no saber tooths today. So I have actually studied a fossil assemblage in Texas that is probably accumulated by saber tooths. And so I've seen some saber tooth fossils and potentially some of the tooth marks that their teeth left. Um, but you know, since they're not around today, we can only model what we think they may have, you know, what, what their predation would have been like, and maybe find some traces of their chewing damaging and tooth marks. I would love to see how they chewed. Cause it just seems like teeth that big just don't seem practical. Exactly. There are ideas that maybe those giant canine saber teeth were for some kind of like killing bite to the neck and that they would sever the windpipes of their prey. And um, But also there are places um, or, or assemblages like at the, at the La Brea Tar Pits in California where there's all these broken saber tooth teeth, those giant sabers. So, you know, I mean, why would something like that evolve if it was easily broken, you know? Um, so, yeah, I it, it would be really interesting to see them actually like catch something and eat something. And how did those teeth work? Because those kinds of teeth evolved several times in different saber tooth lineages independently. It obviously was a good solution to some kind of problem. So, or some kind of, you know, um, selection pressure. So what are they doing with those teeth? I don't think they're chewing with them. I think they probably are used to bite and to, you know, to kill something maybe. It's so... What was it about them that uh, brought you to their their study? Because you you are a paleoanthropologist, not a paleo ancient catapologist. Uh, <laughs> no, but I think I should put that on my business card now. Um, I don't think that's the right word. <laughs> um, so, I mean, in a sense, as a paleoanthropologist, I'm I'm like a special kind of paleontologist. So I'm interested in fossils, but I'm interested in fossils that have to do with human evolution. And mm. so the reason I'm interested in saber tooths, among other things, is because um, when early humans first started and continued to eat meat and butcher meat and break open bones to get marrow from large animals, they were competing with predators like saber tooths and Pleistocene lions and um, leopards and cheetahs, different kinds of hyenas. And the reason I'm you know, intrigued by saber tooths, they're not around anymore. Um, but also there have been some carnivore paleontologists that have 
um, hypothesized that saber tooths would have, especially some species that were large and they were possibly nocturnal um, and particularly possibly solitary. So they didn't live in groups. They lived by themselves like leopards do. And if they killed big animals, they might have left a lot of meat for early humans to scavenge. So I'm particularly interested in the idea of scavenging, that the first meat and marrow and other kinds of animal tissue that our ancestors ate wasn't wasn't gotten through hunting. It was it was eating leftovers from these big predators. It's not really the glorious image of our human ancestry that we'd want to believe. <laughs> exactly. And I think that scavenging has sometimes gotten kind of a bad rap because people think, well, that's some kind of lowly behavior. And why can't they go take things down themselves? And the flip side of that is that, well, you're less likely to get kicked in the face by, you know, a big giant herbivore. Um, and you're less likely to get you know, snuck up on and maybe chomped by another predator. If you wait until everything is like the coast is clear, the primary predators are gone. And if there's enough left over that makes it worth it for you to go scavenge, you go do it. So why not? So I could, I could honestly listen to you talk about the Pleistocene for hours. I am interested though, in what drew you to it in the first place. Oh, good question. So I um, started off, let's see the story. I'll start the story at um, college where I started my undergraduate education at Bryn Mawr College thinking I would be an English major. I really liked creative writing in particular. Maybe I would be a comparative literature major. Um, and I was looking for a fourth class during my first semester. And my dean, who was my advisor, I was randomly assigned a dean, and she happened to be a former anthropology professor. She suggested I take anthropology. And I said, what is that? I don't know what anthropology is. I've never heard of it. And so she said, well, just try it. See if you like it. So I took an introduction to physical anthropology and archaeology class, and it was the first science that I just loved. To me, it was mysterious. It was about the past. It was about people. It was about understanding behavior. It was not about doing a lab experiment and hoping to get the right answer. And if you didn't get the right answer, you messed something up. It was not about like looking under a microscope for something that it was really hard to see. It was, you know, about tangible evidence. So I loved it. Um, my second semester, I took a class, another anthropology class called Primate Evolution and Behavior with a professor named Janet Monge. And she's hands down the best teacher I ever had. I got, you know, I, I just got pulled along in her sort of um, streams of stories. And that was it. I, by the end of that first year, I was like, I think I'm going to maybe be an anthropology major. And in the end, I wasn't. I actually created an independent major because I wanted to be able to take classes in things like biology, ecology, geology, paleontology, um, things that I thought would prepare me to be a paleoanthropologist. And that turned out really well. Um, so it was it was a good teacher. It was the subject that hooked me. And then after my third year of college, I went on a field school to South Africa. And the person who led that field school is a now very famous paleoanthropologist, Lee Berger. It was a small group of students, maybe 10 of us. And um, during the first 
couple of days on the field school or the first week or so, one of the things we did was go to a game park. We went, um, and this is something that's typical when you do a paleoanthropology field school. You want to see what the modern environments were like and get a sense of maybe what, you know, our ancient ancestors would have encountered. And I was falling asleep in the back of the vehicle as we were driving along this bumpy, dusty road. And somebody nudged me because there was a lion crossing right in front of the vehicle. And she had blood dripping from her mouth like she had just made a fresh kill. And I remember sort of waking up and thinking, all right, if I was an early human, what what would my reaction be? Would I be like, I'm out of here, you know, running the other direction? Or would I think, okay, like maybe there's something left where she just came from, or maybe I should follow her. So I got really interested in, not that I was going to do any of those things, you know, that day, but I, I started to really get interested in what can fossils tell us? What can we learn about what early humans ate? Um, and then at the end of that field school, I remember the last day asking Lee Berger, I, I want to do paleoanthropology. This is it. I have fallen in love with, you know, this career path. What do I do? And he basically said, just keep asking people for an opportunity until somebody gives you one. And that's what I did. So I was on a plane back to South Africa about 10 days after I graduated college the next year, um, spent uh, about six months at a research center in the, in the middle of South Africa learning how to identify animal fossils. And, you know, that was that. And some of my dissertation research questions came from the, that experience of trying to identify the bite marks and chewing damage left on this hyena den assemblage that was only maybe four or 5,000 years old. But I just kept thinking, well, who made these marks and, and what can that tell me? Wow. So I imagine that that work of identifying fossils and bones and whatnot doesn't take up the lion's share of what you do. Excuse the pun. Huh. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so ashamed. <laughs> what, what does an average uh, day in the life of a paleoanthropologist look like? So it's actually identifying fossils actually does take up quite a bit of time. Um, trying to figure out what kind of, what bone this is, what kind of animal it comes from. Um, so I really like doing that sort of, you know, puzzle piece matching sort of thing, um, because it's important to figure out like what kind of animal was eaten. But the, what I spend a lot of my time doing is looking for traces of that, of those ancient meals. So I particularly use magnifying glasses or sometimes, you know, even more sophisticated um, tools, although honestly, most of the time it's just kind of a magnifying lens, hmm. to look at the surfaces of bones to see if I can find traces of either butchery marks left by early humans, either cut marks from sharp stone tools that were used to probably slice meat off of bones, or percussion marks, which are um, marks left when you take a rock and you break a bone open, especially leg bones, to get it marrow inside. So those are the traces of human butchery. But then I'm also interested in the traces of carnivore feeding, and that's both tooth marks that are just literally marks left from the teeth from when carnivores chewed on those bones, but also the patterns of chewing damage. So what parts of the bones are gone? What parts of the bones have clearly been damaged? What parts just have tooth marks on them? Um, so I, I, I'm still really trying to figure out, can you identify 
what carnivore ate something based on its feeding traces. And I think this is going to be something I work on probably for a lot of my career. Mm. I mean, that sounds fascinating. And all I can think of is people eating chicken wings and then looking at those chicken wings in the trash. And now I'm feeling a little gross. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's you just designed an experiment. There you go. Oh, there you go. Look, I'm a scientist. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So you've done a lot of work in learning about and discovering about what early humans and then pre-homo sapiens were like. I know we talked a little bit about this back in episode 20, that I, I think you had said that if if you could have anything in the world, it would be um, homo erectus DNA. So you could learn a little bit more about our ancestors' ancestors. Has, has learning so much about human origins changed at all the way that you see humans today or even the the concept of humanity as it were (laughs) well i think probably learning so much about human origins if anything has made me really think about and focus on and emphasize just the common humanity that all people have i mean we are and, you know, humans are beautifully diverse. There are more than 7 billion of us on the planet. We have amazing cultural um, differences, but we are so, so similar. We're so similar genetically. We all come from the same evolutionary history. And so while it's not a focus of my research, the idea of common human unity. Um, and also, I, you know, just, just for my own, again, not for my research, but just reading about the evolution of things like human cooperation and caring and altruism, I think, um, I don't know, I think that's very meaningful in thinking about, you know, we, we tend to focus on differences a lot these days. And I think, um, the deep past can send us messages of unity if we choose to see those. Well, there's something in um, almost all religious traditions that places humans at the pinnacle of creation. You know, in the the Hebrew stories of creation, we're last, right? In In the Christian scriptures, it says that humans are like, a step above the angels that like we're kind of a big deal in almost every religious system in the world and that's how we've we've invented our meaning over the the millennia of of humanity and this this field seems like it completely defies that that it <laughs> says you are not as special as you think you are like you are a big-headed, upright, naked ape with anxiety. And, (laughs) you know, like, great. (laughs) It kind of leaves a lot of people feeling a little bit more empty and like they didn't, they wish they didn't know it before. And so do you have anything, anything, any insights for um, those people, especially those very religious people who are suddenly feeling like, um, maybe I'm not so special uh, as I thought. Yeah, that's that's a really you know that's very perceptive and 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 I think in some senses can cause a rift between people who have strong religious faith and um, the embracing of science. And you know, my message is that every single person 
you know, is a, if you want to think about it this way, it's an evolutionary success story. We are all here. We all have, you know, encoded in us the genetic imprint of our ancestors that also survived in order to sort of bring us to where we are now. Um, and that, I mean, the, the purpose of science is not really to tell us about meaning and, I don't know, other, other more kind of emotional aspects of our lives. I think it's to help us think about the how we got to where we are, not necessarily why we're here um, and what our purpose is. So in some senses, I would say we need to think about the right questions and reflections um, and that, you know, the that scientists, the message of scientists is not that we are just like a bunch of DNA and some bones and some soft tissue overlaying it. And that's it. We're done. No, I mean, humans <laughs> are, <laughs> you know, every human is special. Every species is unique. Um, and also that are the human family tree from the common ancestor that we shared with chimpanzees who are our closest living relatives that common ancestor lived maybe six, seven million years ago. All of the other species that evolved from that common ancestor on this tree, we had a pretty significant diversity of early humans and, um, you know, pre-modern humans, if you want to think about it that way, were the only ones left. We are unique. Um and, you know, we're doing a good job from an evolutionary perspective of there's a lot of us on the planet, as I mentioned before, whether we're doing a good job from other perspectives is another question. Um, I was going to say that's a very cheery way to say that <laughs> we're the only ones that made it. Um, exactly. I, but, you know, but we, are we the only ones that made it because we killed the rest of them. <laughs> well, and so it's interesting. There, there are definitely there, are, you know, paleoanthropologists that think about is like what made humans humans so and makes humans so successful is it like do we have some kind of tendency to try to dominate other species and the rest of our ecosystem the, the flip side of that is that maybe it's really our cooperative nature and maybe it's our sense of caring for one another that has actually helped us persist and made us so adaptable and flexible and maybe it is our cultural institutions that have helped us get to where we are. So I don't, I mean, we can't, I don't, I don't think any scientist would really think of humans today as, as devoid of any kind of like culture um, because we live in such a cultural world. It's so very important to who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't it the uh, early homo sapiens would set up traps and get the, the mammoths to run off cliffs and, kill themselves and so they just eat it and whilst the Neanderthals would fight them and end up with broken bones and several of their hunters dead and well yeah potentially so there there have been interesting studies of the patterns of breaks of Neanderthal bones um, and they are very similar to modern day rodeo riders so that huh. you know those kinds of breaks happen when you get up close to dangerous herbivores. So yes, it looks like one of the differences may have been that Neanderthals didn't have projectile weapons. So they might have had 
throwing spears maybe or thrusting spears but they didn't have bows and arrows so modern humans came up with this amazing invention that lets you hunt things from a safe distance and there you go so it's interesting there there's not good evidence in prehistory of any kind of warfare between or you know early modern humans and other species or really within species it's i mean that is something that's sadly kind of unique to modern humans as far as we can tell um, it's larger scale warfare. It's not something that goes very deep in our evolutionary history. It probably has to do with, um, uh, you know, just the, the number of people on the planet and our proximity and um, tendencies to sort of see in groups and out groups and that kind of thing. Um, but it doesn't look like that a sort of basic tendency of our species is to go out and try to kill other species, at least not, you know, other early human species. Don't chimps have some kind of primitive form of warfare of sorts so yes chimpanzees will they will kill each other um i mean there's there's the infanticide part which other animals do as well mm. um but the chimpanzees when they're sometimes they'll go out on territory patrols and they'll kind of patrol the border of their territories and if they come into contact with a neighboring group they can have very violent encounters um but it doesn't look like i mean they don't have the same kind of large-scale warfare that we have, um, and they don't seem to have the same kind of like, I don't know, sadly murderous instincts that some or or behaviors that some modern humans have. Mm. So there is something that they do those same sorts of things, but also so do other like predators will also sometimes kill um, members of their own species for a variety of reasons. But it's a, it's a pretty, it's not very frequent. I was going to say that I had heard somewhere that humans were the only species that that kill for fun. And then I remembered I heard that from Jurassic Park. So <laughs> Maybe not everything in Jurassic Park is wrong, though. Uh, no, but I, I think it's, I mean, I, I hate to say, but it is probably true. Um, although I, you know, I actually don't know across like the insect world if there mm. are insects or, or other organisms that kill something and don't eat it or something like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of energy to hunt and kill. It, it does. It seems like a waste. And it's interesting. So chimpanzees hunt when they're hunting for food, when not when they're, you know, aggressively interacting with other members of their species in another group. Um, it takes an enormous amount of energy even to hunt the monkeys, the monkeys that live in trees that they tend to eat. Um, and most of the time they fail. So they actually go out, they, you know, go out on hunting parties, they expend a lot of energy and they come home empty handed. So it's not always the best strategy from an energetic perspective. So you should be less like chimps and more like bonobos who settle all their problems with sex, right? I mean, you know what? I can't argue with that. (laughs) I'm not a primatologist. I just call them like I see them. So getting back a little bit to the questions of religion, because we're trying to do both um, in, in this podcast and through the fellowship. Uh, you did some work in seminaries through the Smithsonian, correct? Correct. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was and how it went? Absolutely. So um, 
we got some funding in um, between 2015 and 2017 from the John Templeton Foundation to travel a small-scale version of the Hall of Human Origins um, to public libraries across the U.S. And so this was called Exploring Human Origins, and it was a traveling library exhibit. That exhibit went to 19 public libraries. In each library, we did public programs, um, some private programs, including like a, uh, I ran a workshop for teachers. And at all those libraries, we also had a private tour and discussion with religious leaders in those communities. It was all set up by the libraries. And we got really interested in thinking about how we could further engage religious communities in the, in the just talking about the science of human origins. And so last year in 2019, we did kind of a pilot where we took that traveling exhibit, that small exhibit, and went to two seminaries with it. Um, the library visits had all been for just a month at a time, um, and the seminary visits were for about three months. So they were basically organized around academic semesters, um, the first seminary that the, the traveling exhibit visited was Payne Theological Seminary in Wilberforce, Ohio, which is an African Methodist Episcopal, sorry, African, it's an AME. Methodist Episcopal. Yes, yeah, thank you. You got it. You got it. Um, African Methodist Episcopal. <laughs> it's the, it's the um, oldest freestanding AME seminary in the U.S. I'm always impressed when somebody who's not a Christian knows a Christian denomination. So, oh, well, thank you. I, sh I mean, <laughs> given given our engagement with, with pain, I, I feel like I should know that. Um, so it was in pain in um, first for a few months. And then after that, so the second seminary we went to was Columbia Theological Seminary, which is a Presbyterian mm. seminary in Decatur, Georgia. And at both of these seminaries, we did um, we had discussions with the seminary staff and students. Um, we also we did you know a public event at each seminary. Um, we did tours of the exhibit um, for the seminary community. And it was, we also created a few new panels based on feedback we'd gotten from the traveling library exhibit, where we really focused on the aspects of human evolution, where we thought there was strong intersection with um, what religious communities were interested in. How back do we see evidence of maybe religion in our evolutionary history? How back, how far back do we see evidence of caring for other people in our community? How far back do we see evidence for, um, you know, just even sharing food and, you know, possibly with strangers? So we, we designed a couple of new panels that were really kind of open-ended questions of, you know, do you see this kind of evidence here that um, paleoanthropologists see and how could you interpret it? Um, so we're we're hoping to be able to continue the travel of this exhibit to seminary libraries, um, uh, and so we will we'll see what happens in the future. But we thought it was incredibly successful, and the timing of it was really designed so that um, the seminary faculty could design courses around the exhibit if they wanted to. And so several of them did. They had courses that um, either students would go visit the exhibit, they would write essays on, um, you know, the intersection of human evolution and religion. And so we just, we had some wonderful, wonderful moments of engagement with the seminary communities. Wow, that sounds really exciting. I wish I was there. Did you get any pushback from people? We did not. Um, 
And so really, even in the public libraries, we got very little pushback. And I think partially because at both of the seminaries, we had a faculty member who was a real champion of the idea of bringing the exhibit to those particular seminaries. And so I think the opportunity for a lot of the faculty and the students and other members of the community to have a really open, honest, genuine, constructive conversation with scientists about a topic that in some senses on for, for both sides of the aisle maybe can feel scary to talk about. So I think just the opportunity to, you know, figure out where the commonalities are, I think was a really attractive opportunity for really everybody involved. You know, as I've been doing this science and religion work for the past couple of years, I keep finding more and more that there is not as much of a uh, a culture war as I thought there was. And most people seem to be afraid that there is going to be conflict and they just assume there's going to be. And then when there's not, they're like, oh, wait, I thought I was the only one. <laughs> I think that's actually thought, real. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I keep saying about the Sinai and Synapsis Fellowship, that our first meeting, at the end of that meeting, we went around the room and almost everyone there said, oh, I thought I was the only one. Now here I am in this room and I feel like, how many more are out there who just didn't know about this fellowship? You know, there's 16 of us sitting here, but how many other people in our lives? And I think after I went home after that first meeting on the bus all the way back to Reading, it takes like three or four hours, and was just thinking the whole time, like, what can I do to get this message out there? That simple message that says, you are not the only one who thinks this way. <laughs> And so I'm really, really grateful for the work of the fellowship. I'm really grateful that the fellowship has attracted such a uh, diverse people and that Jeff has been so careful to say from the beginning that the people need to be curious and kind. And that combination of people, I think, creates uh, these spaces where folks are free to explore things that they haven't felt free to explore before. Um, you are not that long into this uh, fellowship program, right? Like you started this at the beginning of COVID tide, if I'm not mistaken. Pretty right? much. So this year? yeah, technically the fellow, this fellowship, you know, period started in 2019, but I actually think we had our first meeting may have actually been in 2020 or late 2019. So did you yeah. have one in-person meeting and one then... in-person meeting and then COVID we were supposed to have another one, I think in April or something. So that obviously got canceled. Yeah. They try to do uh, at least one a quarter. Um, getting people out to New York is sometimes tough. Not everyone can just jump on a bus Yeah, um, like I can. Actually, I don't think I can anymore. I think they shut the bus line down to Reading. Nobody cares about Reading, but that's besides the point. Um, how did you how did you hear about this? How did you think to yourself that this is something you'd want to apply for? So I think um, so I know Ian Bins for a while through my evolution education network, and he's you know part of the podcast and a um, fellow alumni. And I think he was the one that may have mentioned it to me at some point. And then um, I got on the email list for Sinai and Synapses. Um, and when I saw the announcement for new fellows, I thought, well, 
I might be interested in doing that. And I was, I was waffling a little bit. Um, I've also been doing work in the, um, kind of evolution education space with some developing materials for high school biology classes that try to kind of reduce the conflict for students of strong religious faith who are learning about evolution. Um, and um, Ian was in D.C. for, um, I think he was maybe visiting Virginia Seminary, um, mm-hmm. and he stopped by the museum, and we had a really nice meeting, and he was really encouraging of me to um, uh, to apply for the fellowship, so I did, and I'm it was I'm so thrilled that I did and got accepted. And like you said, being in that room with all these other people who are, you know, somewhere there, there, you know, there, there are different parts of the spectrum, but like in the same zip code, in a sense, like we're all, we're interested in having constructive dialogue. You know, we come from different backgrounds and we have different perspectives, but, um, but it is, it's really heartening. And I think particularly coming from the scientific community um, where there has been hostility, uh, you know, I will freely admit by many scientists towards people of religious faith, which I think is really not helpful and unnecessary and really counterproductive. So part of what I'm hoping to learn and do with the fellowship is how can I help um, you know, preach to my own choir in the scientific mm. community about if we're really interested in engaging more of the public in science, if we're interested in building a more scientifically literate, you know, populace, like we have to realize that there are a lot of people out there with religious faith who have are afraid of science. They've been told that science is out to target them. It's out to make them, you know, lose their religious faith. And we just, we as scientists have to do a better job of being more friendly um, and, and making sure that people know that we're, that's not what we're about. That's not what science or scientists is about. Hmm. Do you see there being space for science and um, religious faith to inform one another, or should they kind of operate out of their own specific worlds and just play nice when they have to? Yeah, it's a good question. I I feel like, you know, I might answer that question for myself personally as a scientist. Um, well, yes, but I, that, that's, the, that's the point. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, mean, I as a clergy may answer it differently. Exactly. And so, I mean, as a scientist, I sort of like the separate domains, um, but I also think that there's really interesting opportunity for cross-pollination. I I don't think, I think there's a permeable membrane maybe um, where I think that, um, you know, ideas and, and thoughts and things, you know, can flow across. And I think, I don't know. The the more we do that, I think the more interesting questions we can ask, the more meaningful questions we can ask as scientists, uh, you know, asking questions about things that people care about. Mm, that's a good point. And I would think that in your field, the religion itself has probably played a pretty important role in progressing human development. So there's going to be quite a bit of crossover just in anthropological ways. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As we're kind of wrapping up our time together, um, I want to ask you the same question that I want to ask all of the fellows. And that is, what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about the world? Wow. Um, 
I guess one thing that I wish everyone knew about the world is that there's still so much we don't know. Um, <laughs> and I, that like the more that I learn as a scientist, the more questions I have. Um, to me, that is not unsettling. To me, that's really exciting. Not because I, you know, think I'm going to ever become a famous scientist who makes some important discovery, but because I think the more that the more things we realize we don't know, the more we can learn, the more we can discover, the better we can understand. Um, so I think the idea that like science is not settled um, and that's exciting. It's not frightening and it doesn't mean that scientists like don't know what they're talking about because new studies come out that may contradict or add to prior studies. And so in a sense, it's sort of like the way that scientists discover things about the world is what I would want people to know about the about how the world works or 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 about the world in general is that you know we are just it's all driven by curiosity that's so important for people to know right now because in the in the covid world people are seeing science done in real time and they're seeing it be self-correcting and they're seeing conflicting studies and results and things being withdrawn from journals and I have seen anyway, that that has become really unsettling for people. And it has been a source of distrust of the scientific method that they think like, oh, this Fauci guy can't even get his facts straight about masks. Do they work? Do they not work? He says they don't. He says they do. And if he's, you know, flip flopping all over the place, how can I trust him? I need somebody who is, knows the truth and is concrete and solid and sticks to his guns and we're trying to model that, no, that the scientific method is kind of wibbly wobbly like that <laughs> and by design and it's self-correcting and it's wonderful and it's terrifying to be in the midst of it. Well, and, um, and this is it's a this is a disease that we have never seen before. And so this is exactly in a sense what you would expect that. Some initial studies may, you know, have a small sample size. They may get things incorrect. And so we have to continue to do more studies gather more information. Um, and absolutely, there will be some things that we thought earlier on that we realize now once we've, you know, done more work is not the case. And I completely understand how unsettling that is. I mean, this is about our lives um, and the <laughs> lives of our family members and friends. So it's, you know, it's not it's not abstract. Um, but it is also actually a really, you know, a wonderful example of of science in progress. And, you know, I just keep thinking like I have such faith in the scientific process in vaccine development and coming up with therapeutics for COVID. And, you know, it feels like this is going to be like this forever, but I know it's not. I also have the perspective of geological time in a sense where I'm like, yeah, yes, we've been in here for several months, but like, what is that in the grand scheme of things? So I try to keep telling myself that. <laughs> oh, once we're talking geological time, ah, man, my back is starting to hurt. I don't know if I can wait that long. <laughs> I don't think we'll have to wait that long because humans are amazingly innovative. And so we have people working really hard on finding a vaccine and treatments and things. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, if anything, watching the the world scientific community work together uh, while our countries are fighting and hating each other is uh, really refreshing 
and heartening and exciting. Yep. So, and that's how science is. It's very collaborative, really. Speaking of collaborative science, thank you for collaborating with us. <laughs> I really welcome. appreciate getting to talk to you again. And I would love to have you on for a full episode and we can just talk about paleolithic diets and all about all about that good stuff. That sounds awesome. I'd love to. This has been episode 54 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. As always, thanks for being on this journey with us, and a huge thanks to our patrons on Patreon who make this show possible. If you'd like to help us out with hosting and recording costs, you can find us at patreon.com slash downthewormholepodcast. Make sure to join us next week as we continue our series on big emotions and dig deeper into the biology of disgust and how it informs our religious experiences. This one goes in some pretty deep and unexpected places, so stay tuned.